All right, Story family, good morning. How are we doing today? Y'all okay? I'm glad you're here. Um, welcome to the Story. My name's uh, Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at the Story Church. It's really cool to see everybody this morning, kind of a, kind of a dreary, rainy morning, but uh, hey, you guys fought the urge to stay in bed, and you got here, and I'm proud of you. And those of you joining us online, no shame in that game. I know most of you are probably in your pajamas at home, but uh, I didn't mean to throw you under the bus there, but we love you, and we're glad, we're glad that you're here in spirit today. Uh, Timber Grove, our, our uh, Timber Grove campus has a live preacher this morning. They're not, they're not streaming my message like they normally or usually do. Pastor Kale is, uh, is bringing the word over there, so I won't greet them like I sometimes do, but those of you joining us online, be sure to check in in the comment sections. We'd love to say hi to you in that way. Uh, you heard the announcement about Christmas Eve. It's right around the corner, right? So y'all pick your service and get here. We need uh, extra dose of help on the actual Christmas Eve. So 24th services, we have a shortage of, uh, of volunteers. That No surprise, it's always that, that way uh, that day because everybody's got family and stuff. Hey, Enlist your family to serve with you. It's a great thing to do on Christmas Eve. It's a great way to really get into the spirit of the season. And so bring your family and you can greet guests and be the hospitality crew at one of our Christmas Eve services as well. You can get connected with that uh, through the connect table outside uh, on your way out in the lobby. All right, so last week we started a new adventure together. 22-week-long <laughs> message series, um, which is the longest we've ever done at The Story, and this is going to be part two of 22. So this is a series called A Position and the Facts. It is a journey through the Gospel of Luke and his quest for the truth about God and about Jesus in particular. Um, we're doing this series with five volumes in mind. This is volume one, part two, all right? So the, the volume is called How Can It Be? And uh, that's sort of the theme for our first few messages in this uh, series. Now, y'all have study guides you were given when you came in. If you're, if you're online, you can see those linked in the comments of whatever platform you're watching on. The study guides have the daily reading guide in them. One of the ways we're engaging through this uh, series, we're staying connected by literally staying on the same page, y'all. Every day you have a different reading. So we're going to read the whole gospel, every word of it together, and be on the same page. So be sure and see that daily reading guide. How many of you are up to speed on the daily reading guide this week? All right, that's not a good percentage. However, maybe some of you are being humble and you're like, well, if I raise my hand, he'll call on me. So I get it. But the good news is if you miss the boat on the reading guide, there's, way, there's plenty of time to catch up. So the readings in week one were intentionally kept very short. So you can catch up real easily and get up to speed before tomorrow morning's um, readings. Okay? So um, we're, we're focusing in on the gospel of Luke as opposed to one of the other three Gospels, because it is so near and dear to the mission of the story. So if you don't know this yet about the story, the story exists primarily to reach folks that other churches aren't reaching, primarily folks that have a lot of questions and doubts about organized religion. So if you're a skeptic about religion and you got a lot of questions about Jesus or God or, or church, this is the place for you, and we are more than joyful that you're here. And I believe Luke's gospel is like the gospel for you and people that have skeptical minds. Like, I, I have a skeptical mind. I still have questions and doubts all the time. And Luke is, because of his perspective, which is unique, it's perfect for this series. 
I know a lot of people think the four Gospels are basically just exactly the same book written slightly differently or something. Listen, every Gospel writer has a different approach and perspective. They all give the same basic content in terms of what happened with Jesus, but they all tell the story through a different lens. And Luke's lens is so interesting to me because of all the 40 authors in the Bible, right? 40 people wrote the Bible, we think, more or less. He's the only one who wasn't a a Jewish person. He was a Gentile. And so he comes at this whole thing from a very different perspective with very different assumptions. And when you read Matthew's gospel and Mark and uh, John, you're reading the words of, of basically Jesus's inner circle. Matthew was one of the 12. John was one of the 12. Mark wasn't one of the 12, but he wrote Peter's memoirs. And that's what the gospel of Mark is. And Peter was like the leader of the 12. Luke was not one of the 12. Luke didn't even become a Christian until like 18 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we know this because he was a Gentile, as I said before, and it wasn't until 48 AD that Gentiles were officially allowed to become part of the church. Before that, between 30 and 48 AD, Christianity was a Jewish, like Saturday school class at the synagogues, right? It was like a Jewish sect. And then they opened the floodgates for the Gentiles to join, and Luke was among them, and Luke became a Christian. And for the next 15 or 16 years, Luke was following the Apostle Paul around. We have all kinds of evidence supporting this. Luke was Paul's right-hand man. Paul went to teach. Luke went to support him. Paul got sick. Luke was a physician, a doctor, right, a scientist of sorts, and he, he, he was there to help nurse Paul back to health. Uh, Paul went to prison. Luke went to prison with him. All of these Uh, signs in the New Testament that that Luke was there for Paul till the very end. Around 64 AD, Paul was executed on the order of the emperor Nero, beheaded. And we think that's about the time Luke put pen to paper on his gospel called Luke and on the book of Acts. And I mentioned last week that those two books alone, there are only two of 27 books in the New Testament, but those two books account for 28% of the content in the New Testament. So if you want to get to know the New Testament, from a skeptic's point of view, Luke is the great place, uh, a great place to begin. Now, one of the reasons we chose this gospel as well for Christmas season is because Luke's really the only gospel that gives us a ton of details about Christmas. Matthew gives us a little bit. If you read Matthew, you'll see a little paragraph about Joseph mostly and his reaction to Mary's unexpected pregnancy. Mark, nothing about Christmas. John, a poem that doesn't really tell any, like, details about Christmas. But Luke goes into great detail. Why? Well, he told us last week in his opening, he's like, I've talked to everybody. I've interviewed all the key players. I've got the story straight now, and I want to share it with you, right? Theophilus, he writes to Theophilus. And so through his interviews and eyewitness reports, he has put it all together, what happened at Christmas. I'm glad that he did. If not for Luke, we would have no idea what all happened leading up to Jesus' birth. And more importantly, we would have no idea what it meant to the people involved that Jesus was born. And what it meant to the people involved was an end to their waiting. An end to their waiting. I don't know how well acquainted you are with waiting or how often or for how long you've ever felt like you had to wait on God, waiting for God to do what you thought God said he would do or what the preacher said God would do. You waited and you waited day after day and night after night and with every passing day, maybe your face subsides a little 
Y'all, the announcement of, of Jesus' birth and John the Baptist's birth before him, they were the sign that God was about to fulfill the promises that God made to his people 400 years before. And in the 400 years from the time of the latter prophets, the later like writings of the prophets, right? The minor prophets at the end of the Old Testament. From that time in the 400s BC, and let's say the, the you know, zero or one AD or whatever, right? So really it was probably like four BC when the events of Christmas took place. Christ was born before Christ. It's complicated. Anyway, so um, um, in that 400 year period, God fell eerily silent. And for a thousand years before that, from like 1400 BC to 400 BC, God was consistently speaking to his people through the prophets, through Moses, through the scribes. They were consistently writing the scriptures that we call the Old Testament. But then around 400 BC, God seemed to have stopped speaking and the people stopped writing scriptures. And there was this radio silence that must have been agonizing day after day, night after night, year after year for the people of God to not hear from God as they once did. I don't know if you've been there before. It can be a real test of faith to have to wait on God for longer than maybe you thought you should or for longer than you could. This is the last passage, the last words of the Old Testament, the very last page of the Old Testament, Malachi, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, written around 430 B.C., God spoke through the prophet Malachi, saying, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. The end. <laughs> Not a real pick-me-up, as it turns out. That's where God left things. For 400 years, his final words to the people was total destruction. And the people were left to either trust the sovereignty of God and the dependability of his promises or to go their own way. And some trusted him and many did not. Waiting, as Tom Petty would say, is the hardest part. Uh, I met one of the other pastors here, who's now my wife, we met first year of college. At the end of our freshman year of college, I proposed to her in the chapel on campus, and miraculously, she said yes. I still don't know why, but I'm glad she did. She said yes, so we spent our sophomore year of college as fiancés, totally in love, puffy love phase, you know? We were um, both busy and both dreadfully broke. And uh, she was an international student, so she couldn't work off campus. She just had to make the grades that she had to make to keep her scholarships, so she studied all the time. I never studied, but I always worked. We were perfect for each other. <laughs> and uh, I held several jobs during my college years, um, but at that particular moment in time, I was a busboy and line cook at the local country club uh, near our campus. It was quite the experience. One of the harder jobs that I've had, let's say. <clears throat> and paid, it was an awful pay rate. But 
I always wanted to treat Gio well, because I thought that's one of the reasons that she liked me, is that I gave her everything that I had. And so <laughs> every time I got paid, we'd go to the mall. We'd hop in my old car, and we'd drive across town to the mall and mostly just walk around, because we couldn't afford all the things that, uh, that she liked and that we liked. And, and yet, uh, this one particular time, I had a little bit of money in my pocket, but not much. We... Uh, we stopped at this store called Everything Leather, which I'm not even sure exists anymore. But uh, Gio dragged me into Everything Leather, and she said, I've always wanted to see you in a black leather jacket. And I thought, got to give them what they want, you know? So I just <laughs> went in and <clears throat> pulled the biggest size I could find. I got these weird long arms. It's like uh, off the mannequin and on my gangly body, and, and, and then... Uh, and then she looked at me and she said, wow, I like what I see. And I was like, I know, I know. And, uh, and she, I said, I'd like to see you in one too. And she said, you know, I've already picked one out. And I was, should not have been surprised as it turns out. Um, in fact, I'm pretty sure she had one picked out before she took me in that store. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, she put one on too. And we stood side by side, shoulder to shoulder, looking in the mirror and liking what we saw. Well, there was a saleswoman in that store that just sort of bird-dogged us the whole time. I think she thought maybe we were going to make a run for it. Um, but nevertheless, uh, we started to take the jackets off, and she said, they look so good on you guys, you've got to take them home today. <clears throat> and uh, at the same time, Gio and I looked at the price tags on these jackets, and I still remember to this day what they cost. Mine was $325, and hers was $275, a total of $600 which to us at that point in time, no joke, seemed like an absolute fortune. And, and when she said we, the saleswoman said we should take him home, we, we just sort of looked at each other after looking at those price tags and just chuckled to ourselves because it was obvious to both of us she had no idea just how broke we really were. And so we just laughed and said, no, thank you. And she said, well, you know, if you don't have all the money to take him home today, um, we have a, a system called layaway. Now, some of you will not be familiar with layaway because it has gone away in the recent decades. But there was a time when you didn't have to put something on a high-interest credit card if you didn't have the money to pay for it. You could just put it on a hold for like six months as long as you made regular, consistent payments of any amount whatsoever. And then when you finished making your payments, when you got done paying it off, you just took it home like Interest-free, like Dave Ramsey style of <laughs> shopping, right? Brilliant system, probably the best way to buy something, if you're really being honest with yourself. Anyway, we did it. Put those jackets on layaway. Every two weeks when I got paid from my job at the country club, uh, Gio and I would uh, hop in my 93 Jeep Cherokee and, and, and drive across town again, 25, 30 minutes to that same mall, and we would put down another $25 or $50 on those jackets. And every time that we did, we'd try them on again. You know, it's like just to feel it, just to feel it, stand in front of the mirror, and then we'd take them off again and get sad and leave <laughs> until the next two weeks passed. Anyway, uh, six months later, we made our final payment on those jackets. Man, I cannot describe to you the feeling of making the final payment on a layaway. Um, we immediately tore those tags off, put those jackets on, wore them out of the store, through the mall, out of the mall, to the car, all the way home, 
across college campus. We walk. It didn't matter to us that it was like summer now. <laughs> Sweating in the deep south with leather jackets. We had our jackets, and that's all that mattered. And, you know, I've thought about that a lot over the years. Like, sometimes I'll have, like, little pity parties. I'll look at other people that have more when they were younger, have parents that bankroll them or whatever, and I, I've often thought, would our lives have been easier or better uh, had we had a way of instantly getting what we wanted, like those jackets. And I, I think I'm pretty confident now in saying absolutely not. Now, there's nothing wrong with having generous parents. You just need to know if you've never had to put something on layaway or walk away from something you really wanted, you need to know there's a lesson to be learned in the waiting that only the waiting can teach you. And uh, in our instant gratification culture, uh, we're losing sight of the ability to, to wait. We're in a, an age now where waiting is almost like an, an assault against our basic human rights. You mean I have to wait? Like, um, I asked one guy, this, I asked a group of guys this week, like, tell me the last time God made you wait for something longer than you thought you should have. And they sat there silent until one guy finally said, well, the time I ordered my Tesla. And I was like, all right, we've tipped the scales. Like... <laughs> <laughs> if that's as bad as it's gotten, yeah, yeah, maybe the privilege has set in, all right? So, and there's nothing wrong with having stuff, right? It's just you need to know what you're missing when you've got it all. Because when you become accustomed to having it all whenever you want it, as much as you want, the easiest thing in the world is to become disenchanted with what you have and hope for something else. If we had gotten those jackets right away, we would have been sick of them in three months. We would have wanted some new jacket, a better, fancier, costlier jacket. <clears throat> but the waiting teaches you gratitude. Even if you're not a person of faith, waiting teaches you virtues like gratitude, appreciation, that uh, only waiting can. But more importantly for people of faith, waiting is a spiritual discipline. I mean, waiting is a recurring theme in Scripture. Learning to wait on God is so critical because that's where you really learn to trust God. Only by, by being made to wait on him do you learn to have faith at all. Otherwise, we just treat him like a vending machine in the sky, just expecting instant results like he's Jeff Bezos in the clouds or something, you know, <laughs> set to deliver on demand whatever it is we order. No, I'm pretty sure our life together would not have been better if we had gotten what we wanted right away. Might have been a little easier at times. That winter might have been a little warmer. <laughs> but they would not have been better lives because um, we wanted those jackets and we worked for them. And most importantly, we waited for them. Now, it's a long time ago. Obviously, the world has changed a lot since then. Obviously, we're more entitled now, and that's something we need to watch out for. I just want to make clear that getting what we want when we want it on demand might be the worst thing that's ever happened to us. Because what ends up happening is when you finally hear God say, not yet, what your entitled ears will hear is no. When really he just wants you to wait. He's not rejecting you. He's not reneging or going back on his promises. He's just saying, wait. 
So we have to learn that spiritual discipline of waiting. Psalm 27, verse 14 says, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. And there's that other passage, I don't have this one on the screen, but from Isaiah, those who wait on the Lord will not grow weary. They will not grow faint. They will not get tired. In their waiting, as they learn to wait on the Lord, they will be given strength. They will be renewed like they're young again. There's something about waiting on the Lord that keeps us going and thriving in the midst of a world that feels dark. This brings us to the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth from Luke chapter 1. We only get this story in the Gospel of Luke, and I'm so glad that we did. I think Luke must have tracked down Zechariah and Elizabeth or their friends and relatives and gotten this story for us to hear today. Zechariah and Elizabeth were the parents of John the Baptist, but before John the Baptist hit the scene, they were a couple of faithful, righteous believers who had been forced by God to wait for the one thing they wanted the most, which was a baby to call their own, a family, a future, a progeny. We pick up their story in Luke chapter 1, verse uh, 5 is where we will begin. <clears throat> so uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 5 starts this way. In the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. So a priest, man of God, man of cloth. Um, it was like a, uh, a, a group of priests that, that, were, uh, that were responsible for leading the community from a religious perspective. So he belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. The descendants of Aaron were the priestly descendants. So she was the daughter of priests. So a godly couple here. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands. Now, being righteous in the sight of God doesn't mean that they were without sin. In the Bible, righteousness is reckoned to us by God through our faith, right? So when we, are faith, when we believe God's promises, he deems us righteous. That's the deal God makes with his people. That tells you something about Zechariah and Elizabeth, okay? Both of them were righteous, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly, but they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old, so there was a fertility issue. And in those days, the shame would have been heavy on Zechariah and Elizabeth because the com it isn't in the Bible, but the common thread in the culture would have been, hey, if you can't have a child, if you're not blessed with children, you've done something to upset God or the gods, and so what are you hiding? That would have been the sort of vibe around Zechariah and Elizabeth for all those years. Now, we still have no small portion of shame when people have, uh, when we have fertility issues today. It's still extremely difficult, socially and otherwise, for people who struggle with fertility today. But then it was even more intense, I think. Now it says, once when Zechariah's division of priests was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot. So that's like a lottery. That's where the word comes from. It was like a draw the long straw sort of a deal. So he, he won. According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So only one of these guys got to do this every year. This was a once in a lifetime. If it ever happened, so Zechariah's moment had, had come. It's time to shine. So he goes into the inner sanctum of the temple to burn incense before the Lord. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense, and when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, so that tells you he's been praying. 
How many times? Who knows? But as he's waited, he's been praying for a child. A son or daughter, doesn't matter. Any child will do, God. Just bless us in this way. Night after night, year after year, been praying. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And hear this, check this out. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children. Remember we just read Malachi, the last words of the Old Testament? Word for word right here. To turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And then Zechariah asked the angel, how can this be? And he goes on to say, we're old, we can't make babies anymore, how can this be? And so the angel takes Zechariah's voice away. So as sort of punishment or a lesson for talking that way, and then he goes home. For the first time in his life, this preacher can't talk, and suddenly his wife finds him very attractive, and they conceive a son together. That's basically how the story goes. A little close to home for me, but nevertheless, uh, the, the fact remains that these words spoken through the angel, almost verbatim, are the, first of all, they're the first words God spoke in the New Testament, according to Luke. They almost verbatim mirror the, the last words God spoke through the prophet Malachi in the Old. 400 years before. And so now we have God picking up right where he left off to fulfill the promises that he made to his people by sending one before the Lord, the Lord is Jesus, one will be sent before the Lord in the spirit of Elijah. In fact, the Old Testament said it will be Elijah. And here's a little confusing because it's like, are we reincarnating now, God? Is Elijah coming back? He's like, no, this will be John, but he will walk in the spirit of Elijah. And he dressed like Elijah dressed, and he spoke like Elijah spoke as he grew up and ministered before Jesus. And Jesus makes it clear that this absolutely was what was going on. This is Jesus' words in Matthew 11, 11 to 15. He said, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there's not been anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is still greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So God made this promise in 430 or so BC, and then God made his people wait. But then, at just the right time, God fulfilled what he had spoken. This is the pattern I want everyone here to see and go home with reflecting on today. This is every time throughout Scripture, cover to cover, God follows the same threefold pattern He makes promises to his people. He makes his people wait. And then at just the right time, he comes through, just like he said he would, fulfills his promises. That's always how it works with God. And we get it twisted, we get messed up, especially when that second step lasts longer than we think it should. We're like, where are you, God? Have you forgotten about me and us? But the fact is, without any one of those three steps, we would have someone less than the God of heaven. 
If it was just number one and number two and God made promises and made us wait without fulfilling those promises, God would be a liar. If God just made us wait and just fulfilled his will or his promises without ever telling us about his promises in the, in the first place, he, he would be distant and cold and kind of cruel. He wouldn't even care about giving us, you know, reason to hope by telling us what he's up to. If it was just number one and number three, it's like God gave us, God makes promises to us and then God gives us exactly what we want or he gives us exactly what he said he would give us, then he would be like a, a genie in a bottle for us if we didn't have to wait. It's always this pattern that he follows. As hard as it is to remember, God always makes promises, both big picture, like this is what I'm doing in the world and the kingdom of heaven and all this, and he makes special, unique, specific promises to each and every one of his people. But then he makes us wait. And in the waiting, there's the test. In the waiting, we choose to believe him and trust his sovereignty and his faithfulness toward us, or not to. And he gives us the dignity of making that choice. And you can go either way with that. Sometimes it's easier to wait than others. I understand that uh, this week especially. It's been a struggle this week. I'm going to be real with you. It's been uh, one, of the, one of the hard ones um, for a number of reasons. But I want to tell you about one in particular because it sort of involves a community update. Um, there's a young man that goes to the story. He's gone to the story since 2017. Um, his name is Anthony Forbes. Anthony, since I first met him at our River Oaks campus in 2017, has always been a shining light. Not always like, uh, not always living the holiest life, let's say. <clears throat> at least not in the early days. But God broke through with Anthony. And God brought him near. And uh, Anthony became like a sold out for Jesus Christian during his time at the story. <clears throat> um, he always loved to kickbox and he loved uh, comedy. He started getting into um, stand up comedy in recent months. And he's <laughs> really funny. Um, you know, sometimes you're laughing with him and sometimes you're laughing at him, but either way, it was funny. And um, <clears throat> he also saw his comedy as sort of a way of telling people about God and this God that he discovered at the church. And one bit that I remember is when he stood up at a, a let's say, a hostile territory for Christians. I think it was like Darwin's Pub or something. I was like, <laughs> you did what, where? Like he stood up at Darwin's Pub and said, they told me I can't talk about religion, but I'm going to anyway, he said. And so, and this is on social media, he said, so I want all the Christians on this side of the room and everybody who's wrong on this side. <laughs> it was just, he, meant it, he didn't mean it in a judgmental way. He said it with a smile on his face. That's just who he was. And everybody laughed because he just, he came across in an unpretentious uh, and real uh, way. Anthony loved uh, the story's charity trivia nights uh, from the very beginning. His last uh, trivia night that he attended, he, our final one up to now, his last one, is uh, he, he took the trophy home. This is him on the right uh, with some friends, and they won charity uh, trivia night. Um, so this week, uh, I don't know what happened, uh, but Anthony's... Um, collapsed at home. 
and uh, he, uh, they found him, and he was gone. And uh, 36, I think, years old. There nobody really know what happened. But uh, no foul play or anything, just something, something health-related. <clears throat> and I'm still just processing this. I can't even believe I'm not going to see him the next time I'm over at Timber Grove. That's his community now. Y'all pray for the Timber Grove community as they're hearing that. Many of them for the first time this morning, they're hearing this news right now from Pastor Kale. It's been absolutely a brutal week for this reason. And, and in my grief, I was just was torn up by it because I just thought Anthony had such a rough upbringing, but he was just getting it together, you know? You ever seen that happen with someone? It's like they're just starting to turn a corner and you're going to take him from us. You know, it just didn't feel right or fair. And so I had a lot of deep conversations with God about this where I wasn't too happy with him. And God, as he usually is with me, just gently led me to remember everything I had seen out of Anthony over the last five years. And he led me to this email Anthony sent me in 2020 where he shared with me his testimony because he, he had written it up and he eventually gave his testimony at a leadership um, cohort that he was a part of at the story. And I just thought I would read part of it to you. He said, I provided for myself. I was never fulfilled. God was always on my mind, but never in the front of it. I continued to tell myself that I would have enough money one day, which would lead me to, res- to the respect I longed for, but I never realized that I was in a mental prison, was not a true son to my father or my mother. Through a dear friend, I found myself at the story. I had rarely been to a modern church. I was turned off by organized religion. It stemmed from my rocky Catholic upbringing. Suddenly, there was something about the story that made me nostalgic for God. I began to wonder about him again. And that was encouraged through my visits at this church. And it reminded me of how much I wanted a relationship with Christ. But I'd forgotten where to begin. As I'm slowly developing these relationships, old insecurities have come up again. That I'm not good enough. That I don't have enough money or status. And then one day... At a Q&A service, we used to do these Q&A services in the afternoon over in River Oaks. I asked the pastor, how can I forgive other people when I can't forgive myself? And the answer that I received wasn't something that I wanted to hear. In fact, until that day, I had never heard it before. He told me, well, if you can't forgive yourself, you haven't fully submitted to God's forgiveness. And he told me that I had underestimated the power of Jesus's Blood spilled at the cross. That service seemed to be one of the catalysts to jumpstart my true submission to Jesus. And so I started to question my own faith and I realized that Christ was always my fallback. I was always an in need type of person. And I started to intentionally pray and put Christ first. And I finally started accepting Christ's love for me. And once that started to happen, I realized that I started to accept love from other people in the hopes that I could give some love back to them. It's the first time in a long time that I'm letting my heart grow. At the same time, I search more and more for God's love first and realize that love has always been there. All I needed to do was accept it more. Although insecurities, doubts, and temptations still arise, and I was once in a mental prison and dead in my own family, Anthony wrote, I'm more and more finding myself free in Christ and a son of the Father. 
as uh, painful as this week has been, reading Anthony's own words has come as such a comfort to me. It reminds me that Anthony believed in the promises of God. Even as he waited for those promises to come to their fulfillment and fruition, he waited in the midst of, he said, his temptations. He waited in the midst of his insecurities and all of that as it would come back to the surface once in a while. He still waited on God, trusting more and more in God. And because he did, even though the events of this week are super tragic and I'm devastated and distraught like many of you and like everybody over at Timber Grove, we still have reason to hope. We don't grieve like the world grieves. We grieve with hope because we know that at just the right time, after making us wait for a minute, God fulfills his promises. We don't always know what that's going to look like. We don't always know what that's going to mean. But I know that the promise of God is that we're going to see Anthony again. You'll see every loved one you've lost in faith again when we're reunited in this place that he's gone to prepare for us. That's the promise. But now we wait. As hard as it is, we wait and we trust and we hope and we work. And every week, we come back like two kids trying on jackets that they want but don't have quite yet. We come back to remember in worship and in our small groups and our prayer life, we come back and remember what it is we're waiting for. And we cling to the hope that we found in Christ. These are promises of God, and God keeps his promises. Would you pray with me? Jesus, uh, we thank you for giving us our salvation on the cross and in the empty tomb. This promise is already ours for the, for the taking, yet it's not been completely fulfilled yet, and so we're forced to wait As far as it is, Lord, help us, show us what it means to wait patiently and faithfully for you and your fulfillment. God, as we wait, we cling to the hope we have in you. We don't always understand what you're up to, Lord, and some of us feel tempted at times, many times, if we're honest, to just give up and live as the world lives and go back to our old ways because it just seems like the waiting is never going to end. We thank you, Lord, that even after 400 years of your people waiting on you, you spoke again, picking up right where you left off. And we look forward to the day when we will see exactly what the fulfillment of your promises looks like for us. In the meantime, help us to hold on, especially those who are hurting and barely hanging on right now. Help us, Lord, to hold on and trust you. We pray for our family at Timber Grove. We pray for everyone close to Anthony. We thank you that your promise is clear in Scripture, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we know our brother Anthony is with you, his father. And we thank you for that even as we grieve. We pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.